Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. How close have you ever come to death? Not just in movies and books and TV, but in the real world. When you lose someone close to you, or if you have a brush with death of your own, the tragedy and pain can be overwhelming. I've held hands with death way too often over the years, and the experience has certainly had an effect on me. In fact, I made a movie about it. In writing The Bullet, based on Stephen King's short story of the same name, a young art student with a penchant for the dark side gets a call that his mother has had a stroke, and he has to hitchhike home to see her. He's picked up by what may well be the messenger of death itself, who gives him a Sophie's choice. He has to choose who the messenger is going to take with him to the other side before they reach the next town, and if he doesn't, well, then they both have to die. Alan Parker, in writing The Bullet, called himself the Prince of Darkness, thought that there was nothing cooler than images of death, and as someone whose career has been spent in the horror genre, I too gleefully plundered my way through blood and guts and viscera and death. But when Alan is given the choice, even after attempting a grandiose suicide, he finds that the real thing isn't quite so entertaining. Having had two brushes with death of my own, once at the age of two and another just a year and a half ago, as well as the loss of parents, siblings, and friends, caused me to look deeper into the repercussions of the end of life. I still love a good old blood-spattered gore fest, but I find myself wanting to dig deeper into the humanity behind the horror. I remain an adolescent horror fan at heart, but I've also craved stories that more deeply explore the consequences of death and loss, and it seems that there are more and more adult horror stories available to us, and on more platforms than ever before. It's a good time to be a horror fan, and I maintain to this day that horror stories can be very therapeutic for those who create them and those who consume them as well. Our guest is better known for his comedy than his horror, but he is a well-known genre fan and his work is fed by a lifetime of consuming horror and comics. Stand-up comic actor and screenwriter Dana Gould has his finger in many pies and will get into his life in and out of comedy on the dark side after this. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Cut to Care, a collection of little hurts by author Aaron Dries. An agency that sends social workers into the homes of grieving families to impersonate dead loved ones. The woman who saved a teenager's life, but who now finds herself haunted by the weight of a cheated suicide. The painful life of the daughter of a candlestick maker after her father's execution for making human chandeliers from drunken cowboys. These horrific stories and more, all based around the theme of caring in a world that doesn't always care for you back, stain the pages of Cut to Care, a collection of little hurts by Aaron Dries, author of Dirty Heads and the Fallen Boys. It also features an introduction by yours truly, Mick Garris, and uh, I can speak to the quality of this collection. It's really, really beautiful work, and 
gorgeously written by a very talented author. It's out now wherever good books are sold. Cut to Care. This week's episode is sponsored by RLJE Films. Your deepest fear will eat you alive. From writer and director of the terrifying film The Reef comes Andrew Trauke's second installment, The Reef Stalked. In an effort to heal after witnessing her sister's horrific murder, Nick travels to a tropical resort with her friends for a kayaking and diving adventure. Only hours into their expedition, the women are stalked by a great white shark. To survive, they will need to band together to face their fears and slay the monster. The Reef Stalked is now playing in theaters and streaming on Shudder. Dana, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on The Slab. Thank you. That is the most sonorous introduction I've ever had in my life. <laughs> I had a feeling it might be a little change of pace for me as well. But. Normally it's welcome to the comedy toilet. Yeah. Our first boy, act. Boy, 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 boy. <laughs> so you were an altar boy. You started out as a Roman Catholic altar <laughs> That's boy. That's right. So tell me Nobody about... laid a finger on me. <laughs> <laughs> Always the bride's groom, never the bride. Always the bride's maid, never the bride. Screwed up the joke. Didn't the priest love you? Yeah. I, I had a very strange story. Uh, we had a young priest named Father Dennis O'Brien, and he was great. And one of my fondest memories is driving around my small town in Massachusetts on Halloween, egging cars with Father O'Brien. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And he was a great guy. He was a real... And, you know, just exception that proves the rule. <laughs> he was a really decent fellow. But it seems a lot of people, particularly in the arts and particularly in comedy, um, rebound in a total opposite direction when they're brought up within church like that. Yeah, well, I rebounded certainly in other directions. The church was sort of ancillary. I come from... Uh, um, uh, a very, you know, working class family in, in, in the middle of Massachusetts, very blue collar, a lot of camo, a lot of camo, a lot of gun racks, yeah. um, a lot of booze. And I, for whatever reason, I'm the fifth of six kids. And for whatever reason, I decided to form my personality by just being the opposite of everyone else. I call it the, the Marilyn Munster syndrome. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I, from a very young age, I was reading and into, I mean, horror movies. And that was where I gravitated to. Bought my first issue of Famous Monsters in 1973, I wow. think. And uh, and that sort of was my comfort zone, and that's where I went. I think for pretty for reasons that are very obvious to anyone listening to this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I, I was one of seven. The oh, number two yeah. out of seven. Yeah. Oh, two different families though. Different, oh, okay. Different dads, but um, also, you know, I was very much an outsider, and uh, it seems like people who create, um, particularly within the genre, but comedians as well, musicians seem to begin their lives as outsiders and it motivates them to make something of of these feelings that are inside. Yeah, in fact, I would be hard-pressed to find anybody in the genre of worth that was a super cool guy in high school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like the captain more, of the football team. Yeah, yeah, just like those people, you know, there there's nothing sadder than somebody that peaked at 18. Um, yeah. and it's always, um, people that 
you know, the, the, what I found in, in my uh, particular experiences, you know, there are, there are monster kids that are sort of internal and they, uh, they come of age and there's a split and some of them go into the genre, a horror and half of that, the other half go into heavy metal. Right. Right. Um, and it's this, they're the same people just one is having a lot more sex. <laughs> <laughs> well, you started professionally as a stand-up when you were, what, 16 or 17? 17. 17 years old in San Francisco? Uh, Boston, Boston. In Boston. Yeah, and then Boston, you went to San Francisco. Yeah, I moved to San Francisco after a couple of years. But that's an amazingly early time to start. And, and what was your routine like? What were the things that fed you? Who were the inspirations? I was really, you know, I came of age at the uh uh like the peak of Steve Martin like nineteen seventy eight. I was in eighth grade in nineteen seventy eight. Right. And so that Steve Martin, the first Saturday Night Live, the Blues Brothers, all that that uh explosion of, of screen comedy. And then I got out of uh and then I as I became a stand up comedian in my late teens, early twenties, that was the height of the eighties stand up comedy boom. So I was right. I caught the wave perfectly um but even at the height of steve martin and saturday night live i was very influenced as my as a performer by george carlin yeah he was who i grew up watching he was who i related to as sort of like a working class irish guy and um and then as i got older and i matured a little bit my tastes expanded my personal style of stand-up comedy is sort of uh, an amalgam of, of George Carlin's uh, worldview and Albert Brooks's monologue style. It's, mm-hmm. it's very manic. And, uh, and that was basically how I sort of formed my uh, stand-up persona. But I was always, even when I was doing stand-up, I was a monster kid. Yeah. And they were just separate to me. You didn't know that in the future that they would feed one another. I, no, and I and and I really thought my my original concept was I was. And this is really true. It's so stupid. Um, I would become a successful, a big movie star, so successful that they would let me write my own movies. <laughs> and when I once I got to that point, I would write funny horror movies that I could be in because all I wanted to do, I didn't want to be Steve Martin. I didn't want to be, I just wanted to be, uh, an American werewolf in London. Right. Just, you know, I just, you wanted to yeah. be David Naughton. I wanted to be David. No, I yeah. actually wanted to be, um, done. I wanted to be Griffin. Oh, Dunn. Griffin Dunn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I didn't want to be the star. I just wanted to, be, I wanted to be Dwight Frye. The sidekick. Griffin Dunn. I want to be the funny guy. I come in. I got yeah. a hump. I'm funny. I leave. Um, <laughs> That's all I want. And I wanted to be around the world. You know, I wanted to be, I wanted to go to this shop and look at the effects. And, um, and, 
but that's such an it, that is the most roundabout way of becoming a writer in the it's yeah, like, no it's kidding. Like, I want to be a pastry chef and if I'm elected to the presidency of the United States they'll have to let me bake anything I want I mean it's the most ridiculous circuitous way oh yeah I wanted um, to be a rock star with my band and that way I'd be able to write movies from that yeah exactly movie. it's yeah. it's it's utterly All of that stupid stuff. and and that was my theory at nine in 19 you know 84 <laughs> right know? it yeah. took me until 2016 to actually do it but i did do it yeah um, and we'll we'll get into stan versus evil yeah, and all that yeah. stuff soon but but you also got a very early start professionally as a writer and performer on the ben stiller show yeah that which was... ben has been on the show and, oh has he yeah oh, has to he? talk yeah. about uh severance and, sure uh, uh and He's just really terrific. Yeah, he's a great, and he's a monster guy. He's a he's a monster kid. And also, um, this is a show, one of the first shows where the creators were also the performers. Yes, the writers well, we were, were also performing. I mean, yeah, the Benz, the Benz. So, just some some background. I'm I'm a comedian. I'm successful. Uh, I moved to San Francisco in the in the mid 1980s, uh, like 86, 87, because I felt I had I had accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish in Boston. I did not want to move to New York. Right. I wanted to move to Los Angeles. I wanted to live in Los Angeles um, always. And because it's where everything that I it's where everything that I liked was. It's right. you know, it's where every TV show that I watched was filmed. It's where Forey Ackerman lived. I figured yeah. that was the place to go. So I thought, well, San Francisco is close enough. I can establish sort of a base. I can build up some road work so I can feed myself and then I can move to Los Angeles. And it's So one it the, was a transitional city. It was a transitional me. city. And it's one of the few things I did in life that actually worked exactly the way I planned it. Wow. Uh, it worked out exactly as I planned it. And then I, I moved to Los Angeles in 1989. And, you know, I was friends with Janine Garofalo mm-hmm. from when she was going to Brown, um, she would come up to Boston and do open mics and we were the same age and we liked the same stuff and we became friends. And, uh, and then I moved to LA and she came to LA and then she was friends with Ben Stiller. And, and, uh, so I met Ben through Janine and it was just our social world. It, it, you know, it was me and Janine and then Bob Odenkirk came out and we, it was just social. It was, we were going, we were the, we went to movies together and went to canters together. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And then, and then Ben got a pilot for Fox, which he had been working on. And we were just like in the room when the call came in. So that's how it happened. So it's, do you guys want to join me? <laughs> no, it was literally that. I was like, okay, yeah. I guess we're doing this thing now. Wow. Um, oh, it's kind of a groundbreaking show in that the lunatics ran the asylum. Yeah. You know, when they never, uh, the, the network never forgave us. Um, <laughs> But we were trying to, I mean, like, I think every show, Kids in the Hall, was the same. Uh, you know, we were just yeah. trying to do Monty Python, you know, in, in, in the way that every band after the Beatles was trying to do the Beatles. <laughs> you know, we were just trying to do Monty Python. And, uh, and, um, and yeah, but, but fed by our, our own influences. And, you know, a, a, a great example of, of an early ex- an early example of how like the genre influenced me um i am a planet of the apes freak yes well known planet of the well known planet of the apes freak and i had this idea for a sketch for the ben stiller show 
called um, Planet of the Apes, the musical. <laughs> and what it was, would, it would be a commercial for the musical. Like when, you know, like whenever, whatever, Hamilton comes to town, it's Hamilton. Right. And it's 20 seconds of clips of the stage show and at the Amundsen Theater. And so it was that. And, but because of budget limitations, it's like you better, you know, you can get two sketches out of a set of sets. And if we did this, there would be makeup and costumes. So I needed to write more. So I thought, well, then for the second act of the show, we can do from the producers of Planet of the Heaps and Musical, Dr. Zayas is Mark Twain tonight. <laughs> and it was great. The show got canceled before we got a chance to do it. <laughs> so and then the simpsons did it and it had nothing to do with my version uh oh, it was dear. done before i worked at the simpsons i believe david cohen wrote it i might be incorrect but it was their own idea and it was funnier than mine and i'm not claiming any influence <laughs> well there, um, there was hanging with dr z to come along but so. then but then late yeah. yeah much much later in life literally in 2010 i was talking to john hodgman mm-hmm. on the and and he had found this photo of James Whitmore reading Mark Twain tonight on the set of Planet of the Apes or, or reading Mark wow. Twain's biography on the set of Planet of the Apes. Wow. And he had this internet contest of, can somebody show me Dr. Zayas doing Mark Twain tonight? <laughs> and we were talking on the phone about something completely different. And I, and I commented on it and I said, that's so funny. I wrote that as a sketch 20 years ago. Wow. And he's like, what do you mean? I go, Dr. Zay is doing Mark Twain tonight. I wrote that as a sketch for the Ben Stiller show in 1992. You got a second chance. And he said, like, what, do you want to do it at Sketchfest, which is a, ske- a comedy festival in San Francisco? And my first thought was, no. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> Why would I? But then I thought, well, I know people that can do that makeup. I'm friends with, you know, Greg Nicotero yeah, and everybody. The K&B, K&B guys, yeah. yeah. And and then I thought, as just as a comedian, well, when I first come out, there'll be a laugh. And then when they realize that it's not just a shitty mask, that it's the actual movie makeup, right? I'll get a bigger laugh. And then when I actually start doing, if I really learn it and start doing Mark Twain, <laughs> I'll get a bigger laugh. Oh, yeah. And then I got very greedy for those. And for those laughs. Yeah. So I said, yeah, I will do it. I will. Yes, we'll do it. Let me just confirm that I can do the makeup first. And this is literally what happened. And it just shows you. It's like, and this is the reason I got into the business. Like, I would much rather do this than anything else. Like, I called Greg. And I just was like, literally like, hey, Greg, uh, do you know anybody that I can, uh, you know, I'll pay him. Uh, to do a movie quality uh, Dr. Zayas makeup for me. It'll be in San Francisco, but like we'll fly him up and put him up and everything. Yeah, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, sure, Andy will do it. Okay, great. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was literally that quick. And and uh, so uh, Andy Schoenberg from KNB uh, went up and we did it and the laughs. And you can see this on YouTube. The, la- the That's exactly what happens. Like the first laugh, then the second laugh, then the third laugh. Um, and that started my side career of uh, personal appearances. That's Dr. Z. <laughs> so uh, the difference between performing comedy in front of a live audience and sitting down and writing for, whether it's for Ben Stiller yeah, or for The Simpsons. Huge. Yeah, tell, tell me about, I mean, 
I'm a screenwriter as well as a director, right. and and those are very different yes. uh, jobs. But they feed each other. And tell me uh, what you like about one over the other, or or do yeah do you yeah have yeah it? no that's that, it's a great question because a lot of comedian you know it's a, it's the difference between you know stand up comedy and acting. If you're a good stand up comedian, people go, oh, you'll be a great actor. And like, yeah, one's about talking and one's about listening. They're exactly the same. <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> yeah. Um, they couldn't be more different. Um, so there's that. I had, you know, I, I, I wrote on the Ben Stiller show, but I, I really just wrote on the show to perform. Right. You know, I wanted to, you know, I. So it's all uh, part of the same cookie. Yeah. yeah. And I wrote. Uh, I, you know, I wrote other sketches that that did get made. <laughs> and then I was on the show, always, but I would always write the most. Like I wrote a sketch, uh, Otto the anti Cupid, and it was it was a guy that put people. It was Cupid, but he put people in bad relationships. <laughs> and uh, and it, you know, it's like me in a tree in a diaper covered with ants, with <laughs> looking like Malcolm McDowell from Clockwork Orange. I was like, why do they do this to myself? <laughs> it's like it was such a great show. It was it was very fun. Yeah, and it was the I mean. Bob Odenkirk, David Cross. I mean, there was a yeah. lot of uh, uh, funny people on that show, and Ben, obviously, um, and Janine, and Andy Dick, the great Andy Dick, who yeah. today is surprisingly still alive. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but uh, so those were, you know, written for me to 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 do something in the sketch, um, and then I gained notoriety as a as a comedian. And you get these pilot deals. Right. Um, and especially in the 90s. And they hook you up with a writer and you hang out and they see your show and then he writes a pilot for you and you get $35,000. Um, and I'd done that a couple of times with, with really great writers. Jace Richdale from The Simpsons. Wow. Uh, he wrote Dana. Uh, first yes, one. there you uh, go. Lin- did it have an exclamation? Sure, of course it did. <laughs> okay. uh, Linwood Boomer, who went on to create Malcolm in the Middle, he wrote the aptly named Nice Try, which was... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and there was uh, one or two other ones. And uh, and then I kind of got sick of... I, I, I was like, I'll do it. Let me write one. Yeah. Let me let me write one. I, I, I can do this. And I really... I had a, a great mentor... Um, a, a really uh, important man in my life, who ju- and I think I'm thinking about him because he just passed away. Oh, uh, named uh, named Kevin Rooney, uh, who was a writer, a comedy writer, and a comedian. And um, he really, he what I say about Kevin is, um, he not only taught me what I needed to know, he took the time to make sure that I had learned it. You know, right and. So I wrote a, I did write up a, a pilot um, in in 1997. Um, that was sort of a combination of, what if I took Seinfeld, like a traditional sitcom, but put it in the world of Pee Wee's Playhouse, like put it in a, <laughs> a hyper reality where yeah. weird stuff happens, and it was called World on a String, and it I wrote it and it got made, uh, and it almost got on the schedule almost Didn't, yeah. almost but what i but what i found from that experience was that um i really enjoyed the writing of it the actual as, process as, yeah as as much as the performing of it and it was a very different uh process it's very you know it's very solitary which is used which comedians are used to 
Um, <laughs> but it was very rewarding in a different way. Like I, I really took great pleasure in the puzzle. It's like building a crossword puzzle. You constructing a plot, building in the act breaks, you know, making sure the story moved. It was an entirely different skill set. Uh, and it was a challenge. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I, I really loved the, the craft of it. And I took great, because I dropped out of college after two years to yeah. go into bars and tell jokes. <laughs> I took great pride in the sort of autodidactic aspect of it <laughs> that I kind of had learned how to do it without a degree. Um, and, and so, and by that time my life was such that I was just about to get married and, and I'd been doing, by that time I'd been doing, I was in my early thirties, but I'd already been doing stand up for like 15 years. Which is phenomenal. Uh, it was, so I was like, yeah, I, I was like, yeah, I'll, ha I'll happily be just a writer. Uh, that's I'm fine with that. Well, know? especially at this point, you're writing a pilot for yourself, right? Um, but when it comes to The Simpsons, which you worked on for six or seven right. years, um, you're not writing for yourself, right? You're part of a team, but you're also writing for other actors for uh, someone else's web, right? That right. You put well, that together. was that was that was the weird part because after that happened, after I decided to become a writer, um. I got cast in a sitcom. <laughs> it was one of those things where the the minute, like literally to the minute that I stopped wanting it, they gave it to me. It was like oh. showbiz like, all right, he doesn't want it anymore. Give it to him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I ended up uh, on the cast of a sitcom uh, called Working uh, with right. Fred Savage. Made, uh, you know. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. And, uh, and made made a bunch of money. <laughs> Bought and my parents working... a house, you know, did all the, did the good son stuff. And, and then, you're working uh, with what other people wrote for you. You're yeah. working strictly as an actor. Tell me about how that felt uh, doing it was that very fr It was very frustrating because there was no, in that particular instance, because there was no character, it, he, it was it was a very poorly designed character. Was, yeah, there's no use for the character, and I brought a character, but they weren't open to listening. And and uh, after a year, there was like this character isn't working, and I agreed. Yeah, um, but I did make a lot, of, and then I went to write, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then I ended up yeah, then I, then I ended up at The Simpsons, and by that time, um, I you know it was The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah, so it's, one of the greatest shows yeah, ever, so it's and like, it's still on. Yeah, and I had just, and then I was always doing stand-up. I was, I was, I mean, I do, I stand up like people golf. Like, I have to, I did it last night, I'm doing it Friday night. Yeah. I have to keep doing it just because it's a, a, lot a of comics, biological part of me. <laughs> a lot of comics, though, when they do start to write, or they get to direct, or they're, they're acting in movies or television shows, they do stop stand-up. But this sounds like it's something necessary. Yeah, it is. It is very necessary. When I was really in high dudgeon of The Simpsons, I I think the longest I ever went without doing a set was six weeks. Wow. But I but I feel it if I don't get on stage. I I feel like um I feel like I'm out of shape and my muscles are flabby and you know I I really have to do it. I, I it's such a part of my self image. 
of my, just for myself. It has nothing to do with fame. I just want to know that I can still do it. And you know? there's also a side to, to comics. There's a dark side there. You and I the other day talked a little bit about that. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think feeds that? Well, uh, you know, it's the first line of George Carlin's seminal album, Class Clown, is the best laughter is suppressed laughter. You know, like when you're kneeling in front of the casket. That's a dark joke, but that's what I laugh at. And, you know, I come from a very, you know, bleak, Angela's Ashes type adolescence. And... I, I, you know, my brothers and I laugh at how awful it was. And, yeah. and it's, it's a miracle that we're alive <laughs> the way we were raised. And, it certainly makes you a better, more creative person. And people would say to me, like, God, you're so dark. You're so dark. You're so, <laughs> and I was like, I am? Like, I'm just doing what I think is funny. Yeah. You know? Um, and, I, you know, I, I think that people who are very empathetic and who feel the the world and are aware of the 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 downside of the world the dark aspects of the world you you have to laugh at it or you go bananas and you know what i find just in life is that people in the horror genre or the or the metal genre and i'm not a metal guy yeah but i have a lot of friends because i'm a monster kid you know and you're a monster kid yeah. and you're on the road yeah and, and and punk bands too which i am very much into um they are the nicest people on earth and money people business people are the biggest fuckers <laughs> you could ever meet and uh, i'd much rather be with the because because we have it well i i deal with this stuff we don't repress, you know? Yeah. We, we get our darkness out in our art. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I have an outlet for this. So I can be, I can enjoy my life, <laughs> you know? And, and 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 I also think there's, you know, there's that sort of island of misfit toys element that we're all, we were all the, we were all the same kid. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and there's sort of like a secret handshake element. To, yeah, it's one of the things that, it. you know, the conventions and the film festivals, only horror does that. You know, it's it bonds people who are outsiders into meeting one another and sharing the things they're passionate about. Yeah. And there's no there's I mean, it seeps into it a little bit now, but there's there's very little, very little toxic masculine bullshit yeah. in it. Because we were all pushed around by that guy. Yep. And we don't need it. Um, And kids who, you know, we all, when we were a kid, I know when you were 10, you had a favorite monster that you related to. (laughs) I don't know who it was. It would have been the Frankenstein monster. Yeah. I related to uh, the Wolfman. But Grow, it's the same thing. Growing hair on your palms. Growing hair on my palms. Well, I was Catholic, so yeah. <laughs> guilt, guilt, guilt. He's nothing but he's nothing if not about guilt. But it was that that element of the outsider. Frankenstein monster is an outsider. The Wolfman is 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 guilt ridden and and an outsider, and we all have that same feeling. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, it's an underdog. 
kind of feeling. So it kind of goes innately goes against the grain of that. Yeah, we don't that stuff. We don't identify with the heroes. Yeah, my fiance. Uh, by the time this airs, probably be my wife. That's it's coming up. Um, she works in uh, the she in the whiskey and spirits. No pun intended. She <laughs> yeah. works for a whiskey distillery. Yeah, and you know she has to deal with such toxic horseshit. You know, c- cigar, golf, dudes, <sighs> bros. Yeah, and. I have to suffer these people sometimes in social situations. Yeah. And you know, I've, and it amazes me like we're the same biological phylum, (laughs) but I can't find a thing that I have in common with you. You know, it's just like such drastically different, but they would look at me as the weirdo. Yep. You know, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. I I know you are. (laughs) I I know you are. It's, it's a very, it's a very, um, it's, it's the big secret, you know, it's like, you know, I would much rather hang out with Alice Cooper than Ted Cruz. Oh, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> you know? Choosing two Republicans. Yeah, two yeah. Republicans. <laughs> I know, what is he doing? <laughs> what the hell happened? Yeah, and a golfer, yeah. so, which is another strike against him. But so, I've never heard a bad word about him. What do you feel have been the biggest hurdles that you've had to overcome? Um professionally or personally personally, i mean either way personally i'm crazy yeah (laughs) um that's a big hurdle yeah you know i mean well i was yeah i was uh i was diagnosed in 1994 with panic disorder which was just like i thought i just i just thought i ran really hot (laughs) (laughs) but then it was one of those things like maybe i'm not supposed to not sleep for a week without any pharmaceutical assistance um and uh, I started taking uh, antidepressants in 1994, and oh. and I took one again this morning. Happy 32 and, years! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, and and so that was that was a big thing because I was I grew up in a very small town, and 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 some of this comes out in Joyride, which is the documentary yeah. that we spoke of before we started recording it. It's a documentary that Bobcat Goldthwait made, basically of our friendship and our touring together yeah it's you're touring small clubs yeah. together rather than the big halls that you would normally play right uh and in small towns often uh yeah. and it's this beautiful friendship uh where you guys are on the road sharing the bill and sharing the stage time too yeah. as as a duet yes yeah we're not uh, we're not like abbott and costello we're doing our own act but we're doing it tandem yeah yeah uh, it was great. It was a really fun, it was a fun period of time. But, but one of the things that we talk about that is like, you know, I, I grew up, I didn't know people that I didn't know. Hmm. I have a very small town and I was very well known in my small town as being the funniest guy around. Right. You know, um, I was a lector for the church as wow. a kid. And I was fired because people would laugh, even though I was not trying to be funny. <laughs> you they couldn't just, help. <laughs> no, they just were expecting me to be funny. They projected it onto you. Yeah, it's yeah. like I remember. I was going. I was going to watch Monty Python. It was on channel. It was on PBS, and and I was in high school, but I was already in a Monty Python, and it was a documentary about a guy building a wall on his farm and 
Hertfordshire. And I was laughing at it until I realized that it wasn't Monty Python. It really was a documentary about a guy building a wall in Hertfordshire. And it wasn't trying to be funny at all, but I was expecting it to be funny. So I laughed at everything. And then that was, I was eventually fired by the Catholic church. So uh, maybe it was the best thing that ever happened to me. But the, so then I, when I went into uh, other situations, I was a social wreck. I was really hyper, really young, really immature, a ball of energy. And, um, and I say this, I say this in the movie, I say this, and we're like, I, I meet people that I knew before I turned 30. And I just apologize, blanket. Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> whatever, you know. I, it was just like, you know, it must have been what it was like, you know. Like, imagine Howie Mandel's stand-up comedy persona I bet I was a lot like that just wow. in life. Hmm. So that was, you know, I had to kind of, that was a hurdle of just like getting my personality ducks in a row. And professionally, because I'm into this stuff and I was so dark, you know, I, I do think that it hindered my, the the level to which my career went the mainstream yeah. yeah and i didn't even know this i wasn't even even aware of it i was um i was i was talking to mark Marin, and i was, you know um there's there's very there's a, a a funny story it's not apocryphal it's it's true and both of the other people have told the same story on podcasts uh i was I went to Chicago to audition for Saturday Night Live with two other comedians and we performed on a showcase and I went on first and just annihilated. Oh. Like, you know, I was very good. Yeah. You uh, felt it. Yeah. And it was just like, yeah, the room uh, moved the room down the block as they say. And then the second guy went up and he did okay. And then the third guy went up and he just kind of fucked around. And, and I walked off stage thinking, well, I just got Saturday Night Live. My life's going to change. This is, what, this is what it feels like when your dream comes true. Yeah. I'm at that crossroads moment. And then in my lunacy, I was like, I need to buy boxes. What am I going to do with my car? Do I, <laughs> do, I, do I sublet my apartment? Do I get rid of my apartment? You know, all of those things. And we're flying back to L.A. from Chicago in the three-seat row. And I'm looking at the other comedians thinking, Adam Sandler, Chris Rock, you'll have your turn. <laughs> oh, no. This is about me. <laughs> and uh, and they got it and I didn't. Oh, <laughs> as, as, as everyone knows. And, and, they, and Chris and Adam have both told this story exactly as I have told it. It's a true story. <laughs> and... Uh, and I was, and I said, to, and I was talking to Mark Marin about it. And I said, for some reason, like, I just never, like, I would get to six or seven and I just could never break through. And he was like, do you think it was because your stuff was so dark? And that never even occurred to me. I was like, oh. It is? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I remember the, the bit that I did at that audition was this, uh, it was a real estate seminar. And the and the, the seminar was you kill people and sell their home. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, but that's I was a little like, dark. But it was like, but to me, it was like, yeah. 
is that dark? It's I just funny. Yeah, to me it's just funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, to, to me it's just funny. But um, but be that as it may, my, my life is is great and it worked out. And you know, it's like I, you know, had I got had I got SNL, I probably wouldn't have married my girlfriend at the time. I wouldn't have the children that I have. So I don't I don't begrudge. I, you know, it's yeah, the career you have is so multifaceted being able to be an actor as well as a stand-up as well as a writer yeah. and a producer and create your own stuff. First, I want to talk about MST3K. Sure. And your involvement with that. We've had Jonah Ray on the show. Uh -huh. We've had some really fun comedy people, Pat Oswalt and mm -hmm. Ben and, and the like. And, and they all seem to share a passion for this kind of material. Yeah. But all of those people know who Forey Ackerman is, as yes, they say. Yes, exactly. <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> they've been to the Ackermansion. They've on been to the Ackermansion, yeah. 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 And Carlafornia. Yes. Horrorwood, Carlafornia. Horrorwood, Carlafornia. <laughs> God bless them. Yeah. So tell me about your work with MST3K. Well, I mean, I was never, I've never been officially like a part of the show. Like I, I, I think I wrote one episode of the new series, wrote on right. one episode of the new series, but I was, I met Joel Hodgson in Minneapolis when he was coming up with the idea. Oh, wow. Um, when it was for a local TV station. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. then it was mystery science two mystery science theater 2000 <laughs> and it was for a local Minneapolis station. And we, I, Joel had had a huge stand-up career and then kind of retired early and moved to Minneapolis. And I was just coming through town as a touring comedian. And I was performing at the Comedy Gallery. This must have been 1986. And Joel just came out because we had a mutual friend who said, like, you should check this guy out. He's funny. And then we met. And it's just, you know, it's just one of those things like, he knew who Forey Ackerman was. So it's like, <laughs> oh, and you're a comedian. And I knew who he was. Sure. And I was like, oh, great. This is great. And he told me about this show idea that he had. And at the time, he was had a he had a workspace with his brother, Jim, and they were doing designing toys and things. Like, it was just wow. a... And he just had this kind of idea. And I was like, oh, that's great. And then when the, when the show got put together, we had the same manager. Um, so I was always... I was around. I was, I was with Joel in New York when he pitched it to Comedy Central... Um, you know, I was always around and I was friends with Frank Conniff and Trace Ballou and all those people just by being a comedian that goes to Minneapolis a lot. I knew all of, I knew all of those guys. Sure. And I was kind of around and there's a lot of references to my stand up, my stand up and stuff in the original Joel MST 3K right. just from being their friend. Um, and, and then when it, when it, uh, when it came back again, and Joel started doing the Kickstarters. He, you know, he just calls me because I'm a, a friend, and we have, you know, Doctor Z has done uh, appearances <laughs> on their Kickstarter. We're all in the same bucket, you know. It's right. uh, we're all in the same bucket, and and it, uh, it's my. Uh, I feel very comfortable in uh, in that area, and it is one of those things. And Joel and I, Joel used to say something about Mystery Science Theater, which was like, not everybody will get it, but the right people will get it. Yes. And and that is really my attitude now towards my career. Like, I'm just doing stuff that I like to do. I mean, I work and I have children and I have to sure. take jobs. Pay the rent. Yeah. I have to pay the rent. But in terms of stuff I like to do, I I do stuff that I want to watch. You know, my my podcast is the podcast that I would listen to if I wasn't doing it my you know the right the cinemorph is something hour. i would read if i wasn't writing it and you know, dr z is a show that i would 
I would hate if I wasn't making it because I would be, <laughs> why aren't I making this? That's mine. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's what I, uh, that's, you know, you just write what you want to, what you want to do. And I'm very cool with the fact that it will never be bridesmaids or old school. Right. Uh, but the people that like it, like it. Yeah. Yeah. If you can make it and there's an audience for it, then you're making just you're you're making a living doing yeah you win yeah you won you won yeah Yeah, exactly you know and then you know the the deal with the deal with that level of of ginormous fame yeah there's a lot of advantages but then you also maintain you have to maintain it yeah and if you don't maintain it there's like what whatever happened to you and you start compromising to enable yourself to reach the widest possible audience yeah yeah and i never nobody that i and i'm sure i i bet you're the same way nobody that i like is the biggest thing. Like I, yeah. I was like, I was never into Springsteen. Uh-huh. I was into Elvis Costello. Right. You know, it's like, yep. and when Springsteen would play, you know, the, as they said, the, the Enormo dome, <laughs> right. You know, Elvis His... Costello was at a 1200 seat theater. Like, yeah, this is, this is the guy I like. Yeah. You know, uh, star Wars was really the only thing that we liked that was huge. Yeah. And um, I was lucky enough to be the receptionist on the first Star Wars answering phones in 1977. Star kidding. Wars, can I help you? You're yeah. kidding yeah. me. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> Out in the, uh, uh, with, uh, uh, at uh, Dykstra's facility? or Not just... at Dykstra's. This was uh, at Star Wars Corp, which was uh, near Universal in a doctor's office that's now a massage parlor. Uh, and, well, I'm going to go to that today in honor of you. In honor, <laughs> in honor of George, yeah. Wow, um, I had no idea. But yeah, That's... oh yeah, I I operated R two D two at the uh, personal appearances at the Oscars that year. In oh my god, yeah. I remember it well. Yeah, so that was me and my tuxedo backstage with the Futaba remote control. Yeah. Oh my god, I had no <laughs> idea. I mean, yeah, oh my you're... bona fides are really good. <laughs> yeah, no, you're no, you are the Forrest Gump of the genre. It's, 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 it's you, you knew every, you met everybody. I know, and I know your career very well, but I, I didn't even know. I didn't know that. I yeah, and I remember being. Well, I remember being in seventh grade, looking. The first thing that attracted me to Star Wars was it looked like Planet of the Apes. So I was like Chewbacca was like, oh, I can get that because he had the same kind of bandolier as the gorillas. That's right. So that oh, it's kind of like Planet of the Apes. In that case, I'll watch it. <laughs> it's great. Well, let's talk about creating your own show. Stand versus Evil was yeah. is a mashup of everything you love. It seems. Yeah, stand uh, stand against. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's against. Okay. I am. I, I am that. the author of the worst titles in <laughs> all of show business. Um, they're all word burgers. Um, my I have a comedy album called Let Me Put My Thoughts in You. That <laughs> it's a no great your, title. <laughs> no, it's not. I love and, it. And yeah, and Stand Against Stand Against Evil, which I liked because it was like Stand Against Evil. Right. But it came out uh on on the heels of of Ash versus Evil Dead. Right. And people accused the show of being a ripoff and I was like if it was a ripoff, I wouldn't have come up with a title that sounded so similar to theirs. It's like, if I was going to be a thief, I promise you I'd be a better thief than this. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a, a great example of finally figuring out that I could combine my passions of being a genre fan and being a comedy jerk. Um, and, and what happened was, I had been on The Simpsons for seven, eight years, and I had uh, and and um, 
we had babies. And my wife at the time had a ginormous show business job that was very time consuming. Um, she was uh, the president of HBO. Oh, uh, <laughs> was yeah, that's a pretty big job. Yeah, it was a pretty big job. And um, and I, I always uh, her and one of her, I always to uh, give her her credit. One of her first official tasks was taking a pilot out of the trash can that they didn't want to make called Game of Thrones. Oh, my and, God. And insisting that they make it. Oh. And they never forgave her for being right. Yeah, that. I bet. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but so she was doing that. And I was I had a good run at The Simpsons about seven, eight years. I was like, we had babies. I was like, somebody's going to be home. Um. So I thought, like, I'll, I left the show to work from home. So just kind of be around. I'm still working, but I'm more around um, during the times when she had to be in New York and stuff like that. Um, and the first kind of idea that I had for a show was, and again, sounds very familiar because I made a pilot about it before. I was like, well, what if I took like the cast of Seinfeld, like a traditional sitcom cast, and put it in the world of Dawn of the Dead? <laughs> because this was before The Walking Dead, before right. Zombieland, uh, uh, before uh, Simon Pegg's movie. I'm blanking on the title. Oh, Shaun of the Shaun Dead. Of the Dead. Yeah, it was before yeah. all that. Um. It was called The Last Larry. It was the last guy alive named Larry. <laughs> and and it was basically, yeah, you know, if it was the, the Hollywood Tower on Gower on uh on uh Gower and Franklin. Yeah. But now it's surrounded by fencing and everybody lives there and they have to go out into Hollywood during the day and, and scrounge for food because there's a zombie apocalypse going on. And the pilot story was he, in scrounging for food, he bumps into his old girlfriend and, and they have a casual conversation and, and then she's like, I hope you don't think just because you're survived and I survived that, that, no, that doesn't, no, of course not. I'm not. <laughs> and then he gets angry and he wants to go tell her off and she thinks he's stalking her. You know, it was, it was a completely yeah. sitcom story. Right. In the midst of a zombie apocalypse, and I loved it. I thought it was one of my favorite things that I ever wrote. And uh, the person in charge of Comedy Central said, "Horror and comedy don't work together." Okay. He's like, "Okay, well, one, why did you pay me to write this when I told you what it was? <laughs> when HBO also would have paid me to write this, <laughs> and you um, had a good in. There. I had a good in over there. Um, uh, yeah, it was very, fr it was very frustrating." Um, but uh, and then they and then Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland and they were they were you know they're zomcoms. It all happened. Yeah. yeah. And then it was like, you want to do it? Like, oh yeah. Now that it's been fucked to death, yeah, let's <laughs> definitely do it. Now that it's not original. Um. So then I spent a lot of time like, well, I want to do. I still wanted to do something in the genre. Um. And the way I do it is. There are many ways to do... There are a couple of ways to do comedy horror correctly. Yes. And there are many, many ways to do it incorrectly. A whole lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. There are... The two brilliant exceptions to the rules 
that I can't do is Beetlejuice, which is like a bumblebee. Like on paper, this thing can't fly. Yes. <laughs> but it flies. And it's I don't splendid. know why. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's great. I don't know. And and when he tried to do it again, it didn't like Dark Shadows, it's it yeah. doesn't work. No. Uh, just something about something happened. A lot of it's Michael Key a lot of it's that cast. Yeah. It's brilliant. I couldn't do it. And the other one is Evil Dead 2, which is basically just taking gore effects as slapstick. It's yeah. a, it's basically a Three Stooges story with splat stick. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, again, I can't do it. It's, br- it's brilliant. And I'm like, I couldn't be a bigger fan of either one of them. But to me, I always had the theory of, well, let's, I, I, I stole from John Landis. <laughs> let's take a horror movie. And the horror elements of the horror movie believe that they're in a horror movie. And then you just put in people that behave normally instead of in a stylized horror movie way. Right. And so Stan Against Evil was a very simple premise that literally just hit me one day. Like, like I want chocolate. Like, it just (laughs) hit me. And it was, what if instead of being partnered with David Duchovny, Jillian Anderson was partnered with my dad. (laughs) Who is, as I've described, Archie Bunker without the elegance and sophistication. (laughs) And that was it. And then I set it in where I wanted to set it. I set it in like a 1973 hard Dan Curtis TV movie. Yeah. You know, like I said, in the trilogy of terror, it has those graphics, those font, that coloring, just because I like it. And that was the show. It was very, very simple. The horror, the horror elements do not know that they're in a comedy, and uh, and the people are only funny because they behave fairly normally. Yeah, very American werewolf, very Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, yeah. and that's one way to do it, and uh, and that's what I did, and it was, and it's great. Yeah, that was my yeah. That was, I had a blast. Yeah, I loved working on that show, and everybody involved got it. Everybody got it, and we did a kaiju episode. We did a Muppets episode. <laughs> like we we really, uh, we really had a blast. And it's one of those things where, like, yeah, not everybody saw it because it was on IFC, right? As Bob Goldthwait calls it, the witness protection program of television networks. <laughs> but but the people that people that got it got it right away. Oh like, yeah, yeah. The people that got it. I mean, it's the same. The title, the the title graphics, are in the same font as the Night Stalker TV movie. Oh, so yeah. if you get it, like the minute you see it, you get it. Right, right. And and John McGinley was brilliant. Janet Varney was brilliant. Um, I w- ended up being in it in a in a character that I didn't want to play. What I wanted to do was I wanted to play Fritz from Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, and I just wanted him always around. Never said anything. He was just like, oh, that's just, that's, his name was Kevin. Just, yeah, that's Kevin. <laughs> and he was just always around, just kind of a MacGuffin character that you never like. Just the like, most mundane name possible. Right. And I just like the idea of him like being in a diner, drinking a cup of coffee, but looking exactly like Fritz. Because <laughs> every town has that guy. But just because of, because of our budget constraints, we needed a character. We needed a guy that could talk. And right, I yeah. was always there so I could just 
if we needed the character, I could do it. So we right. just, but then because I became a bigger character, we had to get rid of the hump and, you know, we had to make him a lot of this stuff. Yeah. He had a, he had a hump in the pilot. He didn't have a hump in the second episode, <laughs> but he did have a hump in the pilot. Young Frankenstein. Um, what hump? Yeah. His name was Kevin Cougar Mellencamp. No relation. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much fun especially for genre fans yes yeah, it's, it's very dense it's yeah. it's very dense like there's a lot we had like there's a lot of simpsons in that show like if you just like the magazines are always like female crane operator <laughs> and then, you know, like we had we had a lot of fun on that show well even simpsons the treehouse of horror episodes yeah. are just so filled with tributes to the yes. things we love the yeah the the treehouse of horror parody of the omega man is one of my favorite 11 minutes of entertainment brilliant yeah yeah and again it was just like stand against evil was me making a show that i'd want to watch and it was to me it was always like a funny night gallery yeah and and how did it feel to actually be in charge i was in heaven yeah because i mean i was in charge my friend rob cohen who's my partner in a lot of stuff who i who i've been worked with since the ben stiller show wow we met um, directed half of the show and I, you know, I, I find that behavior trickles down, you know, and if the, if the lead person is decent, people are, follow that lead. Right. And, and Rob and I had a, a motto, which was no assholes on the boat. Right. You know, cause no one was getting rich. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we're going to have fun. That's kind of what we did with Masters of Horror. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and working with Greg, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, we're all here for the same reason. And we're all partners, you know, we, um, and and that, and that was our attitude. And we, we just went to we went we had fun. And, and Rob is really good about that. And, yeah. and just simple things about a crew like getting once a week you get an ice cream truck or a coffee truck or you know you 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 treat the gang you let people know that you're thinking about them yeah yeah and uh and we had one guy that really liked authority and he didn't last yeah you know it was just it's it's like dude we're all here for the fun of it you know we're in a swamp in georgia in July, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know we'd better like it. Yeah, we bet. Yeah, we better like each other. And, yeah. and it was, and it was such a beautiful, you know, we like, yeah. And on the, on the weekend, we went to the movies together, you know, the, the, yeah. you know, the, the production crew, we'd all meet and go to, you know, it was just a beautiful, it's what show business should have been about. And I could have done that for the rest of my life. You know, that was, it was great. You it got to great. do it, you know, I you, did get to do it. And then, and then, and then, uh, I got to do, uh, and still am doing uh, Doctor Z after. So it's yeah, like, yeah, we just yeah. kept, we just kept, um, and I'm very, very happy to occupy that niche. I see things like what we do in the shadows. Oh yeah, it just drives me bananas because it's so good. Yeah, and, and I just like, and they have resources. They have, oh yeah, they have so and and Taika is just a, such a genius. Oh, and it's so much better than it has any right to be. And I'm just like ah. And so knowing, it's obviously made by one of us. Yeah. True, yeah. And I just, but I feel like the guy that made, like, Stand Against Evil to, I feel like uh, like the guys that made Dark Star, how they felt watching Star Wars. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, it could be this. Yeah, that would have been John Carpenter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, so just I a, didn't know you could do this. Yeah. So just a couple of things before we wrap it up. You know, I, I've been lucky enough to see some really amazing comedy shows in person. The the fabled uh, comedy store Andy Kaufman show where Lily Tomlin heckled. Oh, did um, were you there? At that? Yeah, and wow. I got to see Bill Hicks, and I've gotten to see Richard Jenny, and I sure. I oh, saw wow. Andy Kaufman in that supposed three a.m. Uh, at the Improv was supposed to be a Hawaiian broadcast that was done from the Improv. Really bizarre stuff. Yeah. And I'll do you one better. I went to Disney World with Bill Hicks. <laughs> well, uh, that, well, that's what I was going to ask. What are the big comedy moments that you've participated in or been present for? Well, I've been very, very lucky. Uh, insanely lucky in my comedy career that I've, I, I, I've met most of my heroes and they've been great. Yeah. Um, Laying lie to the uh, don't meet your heroes. True. Yeah. I met, uh, you know, I met, uh, I wrote, when I first started out, I wrote George Carlin a fan letter. And he wrote me back. Wow. And years later on a documentary called The Aristocrats, Oh, a is, brilliant documentary. Yeah, which which uh, we I'm we were at a press thing or a PR thing or a screening or something, and he was there, and we're both in it. Yeah, and he didn't uh, he didn't remember, but but to to get to talk to him, and then I saw yeah. him again, and then he kind of like, hey, how are you? Like, oh, great. it was just like because that to me that's like the Beatles. It's yeah, like, I interviewed him when I was in college. Yeah. Yeah. And as you know, he was as nice a guy as he was brilliant. Yeah, and so to to have a just a, even a tertiary personal connection to him, yeah, what was amazing. Um, uh, Albert Brooks, who was as important oh. to me as him, I got to meet Genius. him on the yeah. He was uh, he was I met him through Janine, who was friends with him in the nineties, and then on the Simpsons, he was around. And one of like my top five weird moments was being at a Simpsons party and seeing Albert there and kind of peeking at him out of the corner of my eye. Like that's Albert Brooks. <laughs> and finally he locked eyes with me and he just went, hello, Dana. <laughs> Cause and I didn't know he knew who I was. So that, that, so that was crazy. Just like right there, like, Oh, he knows who I am. And then we had a lovely conversation. That's great. Um, yeah. And um, my friends my friends wrote Dolomite is my name and like so oh like, yeah Scott and, and Larry yeah, right. yeah. Uh, they've been on know. the show as well well Scott and Larry are people that I can't believe I'm friends with like they're not necessarily in, in stand-up comedy and, and Bill Hicks we just we were working on a thing in Florida together amazing and we was like what do you want to do I don't know you just want to go to Disneyland because <laughs> because before Bill died he was just another comic I mean he was great but he was just a comic. In the I mean, UK, was a, he was a god. Yeah, he was a god, and and yeah. and here he was just he was one of the best. Yeah. But I I know all, I know all those guys. Yeah. It's your <laughs> line. Yeah. yeah, it's my line. I used to open for Stephen Wright, and you know, wow. on the road. So it's like, yeah, I know I know all the great guys. And like, it was like, want to go to Disney World? Like, yeah, I guess it'd be weird. I was like, do you want to go on a rise? Like, no, but we just we had a great time. We walked around Disney World together. And he and Janine was from Houston, and he was from Houston, so we I kind of knew, you know, and um. You know, th that was a great thing. But yeah, w w working on on The Simpsons was great because just people just assume you're 
a genius. <laughs> I'm, yeah, right. I'm just a just a clown. Um, <laughs> but then, yeah, then then getting to know Scott and Larry was uh, they are among the people, and and you're in there too. I was just like, I no. know that person. That's insane. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh hush. I <laughs> know. <laughs> people do that to me now too. Um, but the weird. If we have a moment, the the, the the here's the weird one. So I. Like Ed Wood was like, I remember seeing it. I hearing that they were going to make a movie, Ed Wood. I was like, what? Yeah. How? Because I thought only I knew about Ed Wood. And, and again, I knew it from Bobcat. Right. Like, like my friend, my weird friends, we all love Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah. Nobody else knew what we were talking about. But this is the 80s. Yep. You know, it was like, no, this, and then I, they're making a movie, Ed Wood. That's insane. And then I was, by that time, I'm an actor. I'm a guy, and I called my agents. It's like I want to audition for this movie. Yeah. Uh, all right, and I did. I auditioned to play Paul Marco, and and then I got in this. And I, but I saw the movie, and I like it was. It's perfect. It's one of the greatest movies ever. It's made. perfect. Oh. Yeah, and I was like, yeah. it was, and it was, it was just everything that I love done perfectly and like i'm watching a movie where martin landau is playing bella lugosi and he's talking about not being frankenstein like i thought i'm the only person that knew this story <laughs> how is this up? so that happened and then again i first started putting my toe into the genre i i did this thing for the sci-fi channel called the big scary movie show which was i just wanted to host horror movies Right. And so they said, well, we don't have an, we don't do that, but you can do it for a week and on Halloween and you can do the top universal movies. Oh, and then nice. I said, and I said, yeah, but I also interviewed people. I, I interviewed like, uh, Landis when we did the Wolfman, I of interviewed, course. uh, Clive Barker when we did Bride of Frankenstein. And when we did Dracula, I interviewed Myla Nermy, who was Vampira. Yes. Um, who I had a connection through the Hollywood book and poster store, Eric Caden, yeah. Eric Caden. Yeah. And it was, um, Carol, um, uh, Landis. Uh, no, um, I'm blanking. Uh, I'm ashamed of myself for blanking the name. Hernandez, Carol Hernandez, uh-huh. uh, worked there and she knew Mila and she's married to Gilbert Hernandez, the comic book artist. Right. Um, so I met Mila and then Mila, and I became pen pals. Wow. Because she didn't have a phone. And well, then that's interesting. And then we became much closer. I, we, I, you know, I, I made her get a phone. I would take her to lunch twice a, a month. And it kept and, and eventually I lived at Wood. Wow. Because Myla became to me what Bela Lugosi was to Ed Wood. Wow. Um, and so we were you very. You hung with Vampira. I, we were very, yeah, for the last 15 years of her life. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, I moved her, I moved her twice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, we, you know, we became very close and, 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 um, and it was one of those things where, uh, like I forgot she was vampire. Like you're so close. just like, yeah. Oh, I gotta like gotta make sure Myla pays her light bill or something. Like I was, I wasn't yeah. even. You forget that's who they are. You know that she's an icon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And uh, and I remember taking her to see Plan 9 from Outer Space on Halloween night at the Cinerama Dome and I think it was 1996. Wow. And we're sitting there together and nobody, she's on, in her, she's a woman in her 70s. Yeah. She comes in, we sit down and, and Vampire comes on screen the place goes nuts. And just to see her see that Wow. And it was, I'll never forget what she said. She went, Oh, there she is. Mm. Wow. Uh, and, and, and nobody knew like you're sitting right next to her. You don't even know it. It's just like the ending of Ed Wood. It, yeah, it is. I mean that it's, it's very true. It's very true. Yeah. It was, it was really, uh, it was great. That's that, that relationship, uh, for whatever reason, uh, is uh, significant. Uh, yeah. To I can me. tell. Yeah. Um, I mean, she looks just like my mother. I mean, you don't have to be Freud to figure out, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know um, she, the, the Mila outside of the makeup looks just like my mom. It, wow. you, know, you don't need Freud. Um, Amazing. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, no, that was a, that was like, I love this movie. And then I lived that movie. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, and her hundredth birthday is coming up. So we're getting to ready to do a little salute. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Well, Dana, I share your passion. I love that you were able to come in and, and oh, yeah. chat about no, it. Oh, yeah. No, I was. And, I apologize. And we got to do much more. Uh, yeah, I'm right up the street. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm cool. right up the street. Yeah. Uh, Dana Gould, thank you so much for being on Postmortem. My pleasure, man. It was so, this is great. Yeah, I could do it all day. It was great. We'll do it again. I'll, yeah, I'm going to rook you into my Halloween podcast. So you're done. Sucker. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.